At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now. V1. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It feels like forever again since I've been with you guys. I appreciate you carrying on the show, uh, doing a great job with dissecting some of these accidents, especially the notable quotables, if you will. Um, the celebrity accidents seem to be getting really good play from our audience, which is great. And uh, we're going to be talking about another one of those accidents today. But before we get to it, we just want to say that, uh, of course, we saw two warbirds go down in uh, Texas, unfortunately, and uh, six people were killed. Uh, we're going to be talking about accidents involving warbirds and air shows in, uh, in a future show. And then on top of that, um, just recently, we lost a uh, news helicopter that had, uh, of course, the pilot and a meteorologist from a local news station in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, who were fatally injured. And uh, that has prompted us to look at those types of accidents, either electronic news gathering type uh, accidents or uh, medevac. So um, it, it is sad. And of course, not only did we have those two prominent accidents that made the news, but uh, every single day, we have a number of accidents involving general aviation aircraft still in the training arena. And that is my concern. And and uh, as a board member at the National Association of Flight Instructors, we are taking that up as a topic to determine not only why the student uh, student uh, failure rate is so high when they go to a DPE for a check ride, but we're also seeing that uh, there is a shortcoming amongst the CFIs who are teaching those students. So we'll be discussing that, but that rolls us into uh, the accident that we're going to talk about today involving a uh, famous celebrity, Harrison Ford. And uh, if you remember back in 2015, and it doesn't seem that long ago so quickly, but that's seven years ago already, where Harrison Ford was flying one of his, uh, quote, antique airplanes, old airplanes, however you want to couch it. It was a uh, Orion 
that was equipped with a, a small radial engine in it. And shortly after takeoff from Santa Monica Airport, uh, at about 1,100 plus feet, he experienced a uh, an engine failure, loss of power and engine failure. And, um, and I know, Todd, you've researched this and you actually had done a previous podcast where you were uh, incorporating the air traffic control audio, which I think is interesting and and I think uh, you should definitely talk about it. But uh, the conversation between Harrison Ford and the air traffic controller uh, was initiated uh, to the point or was initiated by Harrison. And uh, he declared that he had a problem and wanted to return to the airport. He was given a landing clearance, but he wisely determined that he wasn't going to make it back to the airport. And rather than try and force fit it like many people do in that uh, in the proverbial uh, I'm going to turn back to the airport at less than two or three or four or 500 feet because I can, that impossible turn didn't overwhelm him. And in fact, he basically put it out of his head and decided I can't make it back to the airport. I've got to go to a different place. Harrison was able to fly the airplane to a fairway on a golf course that, uh, you know, we're all trained to pick the best landing spot and flew the airplane into the uh into the accident site and bob hoover who's a good friend of john and i um he's always said you fly the aircraft into the accident sequence that's it you cannot stop flying you fly it because you'll you'll survive and in this particular instance harrison was able to put it on the golf course after he flew through some trees um, but he did in fact survive this accident there are some interesting little nuances with this accident that I think the audience will find uh, interesting because the NTSB brought them up. And while some of them, they did mention some of the after action uh, events that uh, they took, um, there was never follow up to those after action events that they talked about. So let's get into this. And, and one of the things I want to start with um, with you, Todd, is just give us a, a Reader's Digest version, if you will, of the communication and how that transpired between Harrison and the air traffic controller. Well, uh, first of all, thanks to uh, LiveATC.net, because that's one of the many sites out there that has all sorts of audio streams. And if it hadn't been for them, we wouldn't have this, because the NTSB's public docket didn't have this particular piece of audio. But I literally had to listen to it four or five times to figure out what was going on, because they were very rapidly going back and forth. Harrison uh, stating what his situation was, air traffic control giving him instructions, Harrison saying, no, I'm going to do something else. And this happened in rapid succession. A lot of things are going on. His engine was already out. And even back then, it impressed me with whatever I might have thought about him as a pilot, I was really impressed with his rapid decision making in that conversation. By the way, he had like 5,000 hours in various kinds of aircraft by the time this happened. So he's not some... You know, celebrity was just spending money and not flying. He obviously knew what he was doing because he survived something that, in my opinion, the average pilot wouldn't have. And if you listen to the following piece of tape, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. 53178, engine failure. Immediate return. Ryan 178, runway 21, clear to land. Off to go to 3. Ryan 178, runway 3, clear to land. The world is somewhat garbled. And it was a short conversation, but it went as follows. From Harrison Ford, 
53178, engine failure, immediate return. ATC, Ryan 178, runway 21, clear to land. Ford, I have to go to 3. ATC, Ryan 178, runway 3, clear to land. By way of explanation, when Harrison Ford mentioned 53178, he was referring to the tail number of his aircraft. When ATC referred to Ryan 178, they were referring to the same aircraft, which was manufactured by the Ryan Aircraft Company. And with that, you know, listening to that that banter back and forth, it was obvious that he had a plan. Um, you know, he was very decisive. A lot of times when you have this kind of situation, there's a lot of indecision that goes with the pilot. Um, do I or don't I? Do I or don't I? Which is, do I go back to the airport or don't I go to the airport? Do I bend the airplane or don't I bend the airplane? <laughs> and things like that. And by the time you get through that sequence, or at least the pilot gets through that sequence, now all of a sudden there's a, a more critical um, aspect to it, and that is loss of airspeed. You have got to push that nose over. You've got to maintain your best glide speed. You've got to have things processed in a very prescriptive manner if you're intending to survive the event. And, and it's obvious that uh, he was able to survive. He did take down the tops of trees, and we all know that, okay, maybe, uh, especially since you didn't have a lot of structure to this aircraft because it's an open cockpit airplane, so you don't have a lot of survivability built into this type of aircraft. So hitting those trees may have been a blessing. The airplane hit the ground relatively hard, uh, not too far from where he impacted the trees. And so there was a lot of energy absorption, not only by the aircraft, but by him as well, because he sustained serious injuries. But John, when we look at the mechanical operation and what the NTSB found, this is a, a small radial engine in this airplane. Uh, not many people have heard about it. It is carbureted. Um, the board didn't talk about who the manufacturer was, but they did find uh, a defect, if you will, or a mechanical anomaly with the operation of that carburetor. Yeah, it's a Kenner. The engine, the engine's a Kenner. It's been around, you know, from the at least the 30s. This is a Kenner I-55. It had, it had been around for a long time. It was uh, one of the uh, pretty reliable radial engines for the time compared to some of the other engines, but it was carburetor, updraft carburetor, uh, you know, typical of the designs of, of the 30s. And by the way, this aircraft was used as a trainer. This model aircraft was used as a trainer in World War II. And coincidentally, this uh, accident aircraft was manufactured in 1942, the same year that Harrison Ford was born. So uh, mm. this has been a, both of them are venerable designs from way back. That's very cool. Little factoids. That's what we can count on from Todd. And, you know, you were talking about uh, his flying. He's been flying a lot. Not only did he have over 5,000 hours, but he actually flew over 55 hours uh, in the preceding 90 days for this accident, which that's a lot of flying. So he he was on his game. Yep. Which is, yep. is probably save him. And John, you know, the NTSB found that when they examined the engine itself and the carburetor, they found one of the metering jets or the metering jet had dislodged is, is the term they used. How does that happen? 
I know that uh, when we look at the, the airplane, it had been fully restored 17 years prior to the accident, and it had only flown a little over 30 hours. So you do some simple math, which I think all three of us are pretty good at. You know, you're only flying a little over an hour a year. Um, so the question that Todd brought up was, was this a museum piece? Well, with that minimum amount of flying, yeah, you would think so. But we all know in the aviation arena that airplanes that sit for long periods of time, that is not good for their health. Uh, that's true. And, and those jets, you know, I, I uh, was trying to find online the manual for the carburetor just to see uh, what was required in there. Because they mentioned in the report about uh, the jets weren't safety in. Well, sometimes that's not unusual. Sometimes uh, today we used something like Loctite uh, to lock uh, small pieces together inside a, something like a carburetor. So I don't know what, what the uh, requirements were, but whatever they, whatever they did to this carburetor wasn't adequate because it, it worked its way loose. They said that they had the threads were worn. Uh, so this thing was probably vibrating away like crazy for the last, you know, eight or 10 hours. And, maybe and, and let's just talk about this real quick. And, and for those that uh, that do own airplanes, especially older airplanes, you know, one of the things uh, that mechanics depend on, um, of course, are the uh, the maintenance manuals and any kind of instruction for continued airworthiness. But because of the vintage of this airplane and its its pedigree, you know, there isn't a lot of information regarding these older airplanes. So in this particular instance, there wasn't any inspection cycle or anything else. Question is, should there be, given the fact that they are being flown in civilian use by, you know, people that uh, are, you know, um, entrepreneurs or at least aviation enthusiasts, um, do we need or does the FAA require uh, folks like this that, you know, maybe a, a, um, a procedure for continued airworthiness uh, be developed? Because I know the NTSB in the report said that they had reached out to the aviation community to make them aware of this particular issue. But I don't know what that means. You know, all those old airplanes back, uh, the maintenance manual and the and sometimes it's included in the in the the what would be called today the pilot's handbook. Uh, sometimes there, there's only 20 pages in these things. I mean, I've seen some of them. They give virtually no information at all. So you just fall under the guidance of 43 and doing your maintenance on the airplane, which leaves a lot to be desired in some areas. You know, so in many areas, 43 can work fine. But sometimes you get inside the carburetor, for example, or you get inside an engine without adequate instructions of what's good and what's what's uh, not good. Um, things happen. And and Todd and I were talking um, before we all got together. And one of the, the curious things is, and you just brought it up again, and that is, okay, so this thing had to have been working loose for a while. Um, the airplane... Right before he flew the airplane, he did a really extensive run-up, or at least the engine was running for almost 10 minutes, right, Todd? And That's correct. That, and you would think that if that jet was starting to come loose or get dislodged, there would have been some performance issue, 
either during that eight-minute period or at least definitely uh, during the takeoff roll when you've applied full power. Yeah, I suspect that maybe he had a little bit of of, uh, uh, unevenness in the running of the engine when he started it up, and that's why he took the extra time to sit there with it running. He probably moved the throttle back and forth several times trying to trying to get the power. He obviously had enough power on takeoff to get up in flight, get 1,000 feet or 1,100 feet above the ground. So it was it was in place, but it wasn't, you know, maybe it was on, on a, you know, on the edge of failing at that point. And the failing and the failing in this case, it's it's an improper fuel mixture. So uh, that's the outcome. So the engine could still be running, but it wouldn't be running at peak performance. And it may, you know, throttle way back and stall or feel like it wants to stall. So it's, it's going to drive you crazy as a pilot because you're not going to be able to figure out quickly what's going on. You may have tried mixture control. You may have tried, uh, tried the throttles, but in any event, the engine performance was, had fallen off. One of the other uh, aspects that we talked about was the fact that he's coming out of Santa Monica and all of us that fly little airplanes out of airports that uh, have towns and cities and communities that have built up around the airport. There's always people that are very concerned about the fact that, well, here's another one of those little airplane drivers. He's crashed in our neighborhood or he's crashed in our community. They're dangerous airplanes. And in this particular instance, yeah, the outcome could have been a heck of a lot worse. And we have seen in and out of not only that airport, but a lot of GA airports around the country where there are houses and and, and, uh, workplaces and buildings built right up against the boundary of the airport. We have seen those tragic type uh, circumstances. But in this case, you know, uh, he was still able to fly the airplane. That is, Harrison was still able to fly the airplane to a place that minimized his exposure to uh, to serious injury, even though he did suffer serious injury, but it definitely minimized um, any any pot- uh, potential injuries to anybody on the ground. Yeah, it was a golf course, but you know, if somebody sees this airplane coming out of the sky, they're not going to stand there in front of it and watch it. <laughs> and for those of you watching the video version of this, you'll see an overhead of that area of the uh, of Santa Monica. And as you can see, it's a very densely developed residential area. And this very easily could have landed on one or more houses in the area. But like you said, he put it right in one of the few places he could have without, uh, you know, causing risk to other people. That was right on the golf course. I think right about the eighth uh, tee is where he ended up. And, and that brings up the point of training. Um, and training, that's why training is so important, especially for emergency procedures like engine outs, especially after takeoff, because you have to be very decisive. You don't have time to think. You don't have time to evaluate a lot of different places. You really got to point and shoot. That is, you got to find a place, turn the airplane, point it at it, and then fly the airplane to it. And, um, and a lot of pilots blow off training, especially after they've gotten their certificates. Ah, I don't really need it or they do their annual flight review, but they really don't focus on those types of emergency procedures so that they are really front and center when you need them the most, heavy, low, and slow, if you will, um, either during takeoff or uh, or landing. And so, 
you know, this was, uh, I think, a great example of where his training uh, played a key part in um, in handling a situation and in, in his survival. And then the last thing the board brought up, which was kind of curious to me, was that they focused on the shoulder harness. This airplane was not originally built or equipped with shoulder harnesses back in 1952. So I hope these guys weren't doing aerobatics, man. <laughs> you know, that would be a little uh, queasy when you're hanging upside down by just a seatbelt. But uh, apparently at some point, uh, Harrison did have a shoulder harness set installed both in the front seat and the back seat. This is a tandem configured airplane. You fly the airplane from the rear seat. It's apparent that he had shoulder harnesses installed and, and was using them. But the board found that the uh, the way it was mounted to the back of the seat didn't afford him uh, as much protection as you would expect from a shoulder harness. And, and it was kind of curious because they tried to explain in the report that, yes, normally with a shoulder harness installation, as you well know, John, um, you normally have a, an STC or a field approval. But in this case, it was kind of unique uh, that they were using a part of the regulation that allowed them to install these shoulder harnesses as long as you didn't drill holes or weld anything to the aircraft. To its, to its primary structure. Yes. All right. So that, that was... a. Uh, you know, putting a shoulder harness in an airplane that didn't come equipped with it can be quite a challenge sometimes to, to find the right place of the structure to put it in. And sometimes the structure is not uh, most uh, robust in the area where the, the seats are. So what they what has been done, and I've seen it before, is they'll attach them to the seat frame itself. And in these early airplanes, the seat was an aluminum bucket, essentially, contoured like a seat, but it was aluminum. Uh, sometimes we used, years ago, we used to see them in fiberglass inside airports. Mm. It's that similar to that, but it's very soft aluminum. It's not hard aluminum. And they throw a big, a big wood washer, you know, so if the, if the attach points are quarter inch bolt, then the, the washer might be two inches in diameter. Well, in a soft aluminum structure like that, you could pull it out. And he did. Mm -hmm. So, it's, uh, you know, you're getting a shoulder harness, but you're not getting the benefit of all the strength that's required. Now, what should have been done is that seat should have been reinforced with additional pieces of aluminum uh, covering a larger area and then attached to this harness to it. But, you know, that takes time and uh, time is money. Yeah, and it was interesting, like I said earlier, that the board had made a statement that uh, they had reached out to the community to let them know not only about uh, what they found with the carburetor, uh, but also about the shoulder harness installation. And um, and so I'm curious what that reach, you know, that, that outreach was and what was the response and what's being done, if anything, uh, in the aviation community to not only alert people, but to get them to, you know, reevaluate what they've done, especially with shoulder harness installation in these older airplanes. Um, just because this is not going to be the last accident of this type. There's still a lot of vintage airplanes out there. 
And while pilots and owners are trying to be safe by installing these aftermarket products, um, they may not be getting the full benefit of those products. It's, it's not the first and won't be the last airplane that, that adds these pieces to it. And sometimes the FAA, uh, you know, we've allowed them to add uh, AOA uh, sensors on some airplanes that never had them. You're talking angle of attack sensors? Yes. And the, uh, you know, so they said if you can buy it off the shelf, you can put it on an airplane that never had it. That's all well and good, but where's the guidance? Where's the, you know, you got to go a little bit further than just say, yeah, go ahead. Ollie, Ollie, entry, go put one. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, because we do have a lot of different uh, skill levels in, the, in uh, both the pilot community in the maintenance community and sometimes you get a mechanic who hasn't had any experience in this and he'll copy the installation off someplace else and you know it may it may function well under most conditions but sometimes you might just find one condition where it doesn't work well and the pilot's relying upon it yeah there's a lot more involved with aircraft maintenance than uh, automotive maintenance more than more than uh, most people recognize yeah. Well, you know, we've dissected the uh, the John Denver accident on a previous show, and um, a lot of these celebrities do have airplanes. They do fly. Some fly more than others. Um, and in this case, we had Harrison, who, who made a good decision. Now, Harris, this isn't his only little faux pas um, with regard to flying. Um, he took a lot of heat for uh, landing. <laughs> At uh, on a taxiway, and um, he's had a few events, but as an accomplished pilot, um, while yes, these are issues and are they an area of concern? A lot of people have blamed his age and a variety of other things. You know what? There's, I mean, that's that's a lot of hearsay and and a lot of uh, armchair quarterbacking, if you will. But when you look at the outcome of this particular event. Um, and you look at the sequence of events, uh, he did everything right. And, um, and I think that's the key here. And again, I really think it's because he is an active pilot. He did fly, uh, you know, quite a bit of time in the previous 90 days. So his head's in the game. He was mentally prepared. And when he needed that preparedness to, uh, to work, it worked. And um, and he was able to uh, put this aircraft down, although he couldn't walk away from it. He did put it down safely because he survived it. And he's back making movies and doing all of his things and flying airplanes and and really promoting aviation for young people. So uh, I think this was a good accident to dissect that. Again, you take the celebrity status out. He's just a pilot. But this just pilot um, did it right. You know, they did, I wish they had mentioned whether or not he had done a good uh, pre-planning for his flight, because it it would have been uh, helpful to know that. Because did he know that golf course was there? I suspected he did the number of hours that he flown, has flown in the previous 90 days. So I suspect he knew that the golf course was there. And uh, I'm a little surprised also that the takeoff was in the opposite direction, because usually all those airports out in the, on the West Coast, Post the wind is always off the ocean. Yeah, I'm surprised that he was around the other way, but 
that that's uh, immaterial. Uh, he did do a good job of this. He has uh, previous experience in, in uh, having emergencies and how to deal with them. Yeah. In fact, you even uh, were with him after, long after this accident, Greg, were you not? Yeah, I was. Yep. And, uh, you know, he... Uh... <laughs> He uh, he's called me a couple of times on other events, but uh, you know, again, when you talk to him, he is a savvy aviator. Um, he flies a Citation. He uh, he has uh, helicopters. I mean, he he is an aviation buff, but he is also an accomplished pilot, and um, and there's a lot to be said for that because I, um, I I think that when you look at a lot of these celebrities, you look at a Tom Cruise. And his latest movie where, I mean, that's his P-51 Mustang and that's him flying that airplane. And he flies a variety of airplanes. He stays in the air quite a bit. He is he is current. And there are a lot of other, quote, celebrities that do the same thing. A lot of the race car drivers, NASCAR and uh, and Formula drivers are also pilots. They, they fly themselves uh, to races and things like that. So while, yes, they do have a name. And yes, they are in the spotlight. Um, we can't, I mean, if they have a problem, we have to wait for the facts, condition, and circumstances uh, to really pan out before, you know, um, any kind of criticism of their skills, abilities, and knowledge uh, are attacked. And, and I think in this case, while yes, there have been other things with Harrison, this particular event, he did a very good job. And what do they every landing you can walk away from is that that's right. So well with that, gentlemen, I will leave uh I will leave the second to the last word with Todd before I go to uh to the uh the master. Well, when I first looked at this uh, seven plus years ago and did that podcast that uh, we had an excerpt from. What impressed me then was his decision-making and the fact that he was able to work through this and survive it. Now that I'm back flying again, I'm impressed all the same and even then, and even more so because now versus then, the average pilot, and below average pilot in my case, has the opportunity to <laughs> uh, practice. Don't, don't cut yourself so <laughs> short, my friend. Come on. You can practice this with low fidelity simulators like my X-Plane or if you have Microsoft Simulator or something similar. Here's my recommendation. If you have one of these setups at home, go read the report, which is going to be on the, the, the page for this episode. Try and recreate the situation that Harrison Ford was in and see how well you do and see how many times you have to practice this before you can reliably and consistently get it on that golf course. Yeah, that's a great point, Todd. It is. Excellent. And with that, John, I will leave you with our last word. And as always, I'll talk about a good session of pre-planning. You know, obviously he knew that uh, what was around him at this airport, because it, it is his home airport, but if it's, if it is or it isn't your home airport, before you go up to the airport, do a session of pre-planning. Look at the charts, look at the, the terrain. Where, do, where am I going to put this airplane if I lose an engine? on takeoff. Where am I going to go? Right. After you get to the airport, redo your planning, of, especially for the weather. Here, there, and en route. You know, you've got to do all of the, that homework, if you will, right, to make a flight successful. 
get out to the airplane, do a good free flight. We're seeing, I saw another accident where a, a free flight wasn't done properly. It should have caught the problem that they had before the accident, but they didn't. So please do a good pre flight. If you don't know and you're not confident with the pre flight that you're doing, get a mechanic at the airport that works on that airplane to spend 15 to 20 minutes with you doing a good walk around on the airplane. What to look for. After you get in the, in, uh, in the air, put your head on the swivel. You know, we had just had a drastic mid-air collision in Texas. Greg talked about it in the beginning. Uh, you've got to know what's going on around you. And the only way you can do it in a GA airplane is have that head on a swivel. You know, and sometimes you've got to move the airplane, roll it a little bit so you can see what's going on underneath you. If you think there's any traffic, you know, pay attention. And you can make it a very successful flight that way. So please, please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.